Hey, Lord. Thank you, Father, as always, for this time in worship. Thank you for the goodness and the, the love of the fellowship that we have here. Father, thank you that we learn on a consistent basis about you and your word. Father, I get uh, messages from all over the world, people who say they wish they could learn the Bible in the way that we are able to study it. How easily, Father, we can forget that. Thank you, Father, that we are privileged to have men and women in this church who serve us in so many ways. How easily we take advantage of that, and yet, Father, you are always there ensuring that we have what we need. And I look, Father, into the Word this morning, conscious of how important this moment was in the garden and how much has come because of it. But also, Father, I am mindful of the fact that even before it happened, you were prepared to do what was necessary to recover from it. And for that, Father, we are eternally grateful. Help us to have that perspective as we study this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are finishing chapter 3, looking at how God responded to sin in the garden. I can't overemphasize how important this scene is to everything else in the Bible. You have him already speaking against Satan. And with what Satan did in the garden, God set in place the truth of what will happen to him in the future. We have woman as the second party in the conversation. And God directed to her a different kind of response. He never cursed a woman as we saw last week. And in the three decrees that he gave to woman, they were all a measure of grace in some respect that she goes largely unpunished except for what she will share in the punishments handed out to Adam. And I can assure you that the punishments that come to Adam are in fact severe. And yet there is still a measure of grace for him in all that God does. So let's look at Genesis 3.17 and begin to see that the last part of how God responds to the sin of the garden. Genesis 3.17 Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, And to dust you shall return. So God here reserves the longest statement of all that he says for Adam. And he begins it by saying, you listened to your wife's voice. Now, how many of us have been told time and time again, that's actually not a bad thing. And in fact, maybe criticized for doing otherwise. But in this context, it's not so much that it's bad to hear your wife. That's certainly not the point. It is, by comparison, the wrong thing for Adam to have done. And what's the comparison that's obvious in the text? He should have listened to a different voice, right? He should have listened to God's voice. That was the problem. This is a general rule. And it goes both ways. A husband should take the counsel of his wife, unless, of course, it flies in the face of God's counsel. But likewise, a wife, even who is understanding of the role in the marriage to be submitted to her husband's authority, nevertheless, that authority of the husband cannot trump the authority of God. And so when there is a conflict there, the wife must listen to the voice of God as well. That's always the expectation for both man and woman. In this case, we notice Adam did not hear God's voice, but rather listened to his wife's, to his own regret. But also notice he's not accused of having listened to the serpent's voice. 
Now, that's important because it reminds us that the man was not eavesdropping on what the woman was saying with the, with the snake. He wasn't influenced necessarily by anything that the serpent said to woman in their conversation. There's nothing in the text to suggest that. Some have made a lot of the fact that he is seen to be near her in that moment, that she took the fruit, ate, and then handed it to him. But really, that's going too far in the text. The text doesn't imply any linkage in time, just linkage in cause and effect. She hears the snake, she eats, she eats, she hands to him. It could easily have been gaps of time between those three, moments, minutes, hours even. There's nothing to require that it happened with all three present together. And the text itself makes clear his blame is because he heard her voice and did as she instructed. Not that he heard serpents or Satan's voice and did as Satan suggested. Therefore, we come to this conclusion. Man was culpable for his decision. Adam was responsible for what he did, and therefore he is the one Scripture credits for bringing sin into the world. He wasn't deceived. He made a choice. He listened to two voices, but chose the wrong one. So God now, in response to Adam's sin, issues the second curse. And if you were counting you would notice this is the only other one. He, he's issued one up till now. This is his second one. We can look at chapter 3 and refer to it as the chapter in which there are the curses of God. Technically, there are two. But remember, most people believe that it means that God spoke one curse after another after another, and he just threw them out against everyone who was involved. And yet, as we've looked carefully, the only one cursed up to now has been Satan, not woman, of course. And now as we turn to man, who is cursed? The ground. He does not curse Adam either. Neither woman nor Adam are cursed for their role in the fall in the garden. Instead, he curses the ground. And specifically, what he has said here in the course of that verse, particularly verses 17, 18, and 19, he says that the earth itself is made or deemed to be irreparable. He has deemed it to be irreparable. Remember, a curse means that the object of the curse will cease to be in some context, in some sense. By this curse, God has declared that the earth must be replaced. The earth is no longer considered suitable for eternity because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin has contaminated the earth. Now, here's the connection between Adam and the earth. Remember, Adam was made from the earth. And so when he fell, when he walked into sin knowingly, the earth became contaminated by sin in the sense that he's part of the earth. His physical body is no different from God's point of view than a tree, which itself came from the earth, or an animal, which itself came from the earth, or the ground itself, which is, of course, the earth. They're no different in the sense that they're all the same material. Now, obviously, men differ from animals. Men differ from plants. I'm not suggesting in some... You know, humanistic sense that they're all the same. What makes us different is the spirit God has placed in the body. But when we talk only about the physical, the body of human beings is made from the ground. That's self-evident if you look at it atomically. Same chemicals. And when we die, as God here has decreed, our body returns to that state. So there's nothing surprising in that, but it explains why, as Adam sinned, God now is under this requirement to deal with the earth, with the physical earth, because it has been contaminated. And so he declares that the earth now, as a result of this curse, 
will be replaced. It is irreparable. It will, in fact, deteriorate over time and wear out. Many believe, and I think this is probably true, many believe this is the origination of the second law of thermodynamics, without it obviously being stated that way, that the effect of this curse is it brings into place the second law of thermodynamics. If you don't know that law, the law is simply that all matter and energy go from a higher state of organization to a lower state. All energy and matter come start at some state of organization and will, in their own way, by themselves, deteriorate from higher levels to lower levels. They will never go the other direction. That's the second law of thermodynamics. So energy will always go from higher states to lower states. Uh, the energy of motion becomes the energy of heat. Heat is a less organized form of energy than motion. This is why your car breaks down. This is why your kitchen uh, appliances fail. This is why your body fails. This is where it started. In Isaiah 34, verse 4, the prophet says, And all the hosts of heaven will wear out, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and their host will all wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. And then Second Peter, taking that principle and applying it more specifically, says this, Second Peter 3.10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the, coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter's application is that as men and women who know the truth of Scripture, our attitude should be, this world's going away, I don't need to invest much in it. I certainly don't want to place my hope in it. It's destined to be burned up and replaced. Isaiah says it's already being destroyed slowly, sort of like your car. It's withering away because there is the intent on God's part to replace it. Now, look at what God is doing here. There's a subtlety here that I don't want you to miss. First, look at the effect it had on Adam. Because of this curse, Adam is now told he's going to work the ground in the garden to serve God. But where before that work would have been enjoyable and rewarding, in fact, it wasn't really work at all in the way we think of work today, it would have been service to joy with none of the toil and struggle and, and difficulty that we commonly associate with work, especially gardening today. But to now what God says is those efforts will be a chore. They will be a fight against this decree. God has put into motion the second law of thermodynamics. If you plant a garden, weeds are going to show up. If you till the ground, the wind's going to blow the, the dirt around. If you put a fence up, it's going to deteriorate over time and fall down. And you're going to keep having to go back to, the, to, to that process of work and build up and fix only to see it tear down again. Continually. That's toil. That's fruitlessness. That's frustration. That's the nature of how this curse affected Adam and everyone after Adam in the way we work on the ground. Yard work now isn't fun in the sense that we regret the fact that it doesn't last. When is it most fun? In fact, you can just make a simple application. When is gardening the most fun? Right after you've got everything looking good and you stand back and you look at it, right? 
Come back in a week. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's that weed again. Right? Things die. Things fall apart. They need repair. Before the fall, none of those setbacks. And yet, again, after the restoration of the earth, we will find yet again a wonderful kind of experience working and serving God. We will return to the way Adam was first given the opportunity to serve him. That's our future. Look forward to that. Consider what that will be like. So the first thing to understand is this had an immediate debilitating effect on the power of our own work in this world. We fight now against, like a salmon swimming upstream, we fight now against a curse that God has instituted for the very reason that it would make that work hard. Now, there's certainly punishment in that. There's a chastisement taking place as we work against the ground. Just think about that. I do. Having learned this principle at some point in the past, now when I work on the ground, and that's not limited to the ground, of course, but that's the most obvious place where it comes to mind. When I'm doing yard work, I keep thinking, darn you, Adam, darn you, Adam. Look what you've made me have to do every Saturday morning, right? To some extent, that's true. Now, my own sin is my own sin. It's not all on him now, but he began it. Why does God curse the ground in this way? Of all the ways he could have responded, why does he choose it in this way? Well, first, like woman's pain, as I've said a minute ago, there's chastisement here. But there's also a memorial in the same way that woman in the pain of childbirth becomes a memorial, a picture of something. What is the picture? What is the object lesson that's been made available to mankind through this frustrating process of working the ground? Never to be done with the work? Never to see the work actually culminate in something lasting and good? Well, remember, our flesh always wants to solve its own problems. That's the nature of sinful flesh. And this object lesson teaches us the futility of working in the face of sin. Remember, this problem now is the result of sin. And our work now in the face of that sin is a frustrating, fruitless, and ultimately futile kind of work, isn't it? How long can you garden to achieve a perfect garden that never falls apart? Not enough in this world. Never going to happen. And man's fruitlessness now in this effort to work will solve a problem in our mind if we allow it to, if we are conscious of what Scripture says. It will help remind us of the fruitlessness of trying to work our own spiritual solution as well. You cannot take the work of your own hands and hold it against what God offers in the work of Christ and ever choose your own work over God's work. That would be like choosing a garden you try to tend versus the Garden of Eden. Which one would you rather have? You don't rely on your own work, you rely on God's. So that's the object lesson. Lastly, the curse ensures that God can eventually put to an end what has been contaminated by sin. The most obvious effect of this curse is that it does away with the sin of the world. Not the sin of the human being, that's done away with Christ on the cross. But the contaminated parts of the world, the earth itself and all that comes from it, is replaced because of this curse. Remember, Adam's body will be replaced when his body dies. God just decreed physical death here. By the way, that's something I shouldn't pass over lightly. Many people say, well, when Adam ate the fruit of the garden, that's when death came into being, physical death came into being. Not exactly. Spiritual death came into being when he ate the fruit. Here, though, is where physical death came into being. Now, it's the result of eating the fruit indirectly. God pronounces this curse because he ate the fruit. But don't get in your mind that the fruit itself created physical death. It didn't. 
theoretically, had God not brought this curse, what would have happened? You still would have had man and woman sinful in the garden. But now their bodies are still in the form that God originally created them, which are what? Perfect bodies without any death, without anything to hold them back, without any reason they'd ever stop functioning. No second law of thermodynamics. No getting old and going gray and getting weak and flabby and falling apart. No disease. None of the things that come from this problem, from this curse, would have been in place. So you would have had immortal human beings living with sin forever. That's not a good situation if you're the one with sin. You've just been locked out from ever, ever having a fellowship with God again. So this curse instituted physical death as grace to mankind, ultimately grace, because it puts an end to this physical container, which then makes available the opportunity for a new one. If you are a believer, that's the day you look forward to. Because it brings you to the place that Adam was before the fall. A heart that knows the Lord without sin and a body to go, to go with it that is also sinless. Now, of course, if you're an unbeliever, death brings the judgment. But, folks, that judgment was inevitable if you have sin. This isn't changing that. This is just creating a deadline. Where before, it was an infinite deadline. And for the sake of those who would come to know the Lord and be saved and need a new body, he instituted this penalty with the obvious impact that for the unbeliever, it also sets a deadline for their existence in the physical body on earth. You can't get one without the other. He can't allow the unbeliever to live indefinitely in a body of sin while bringing the physical body of believers to an end so he can give them a new body. There's, there's one death and one judgment, and he brings everyone to that moment. So ultimately, this curse is a blessing for God's children in the eternal. But for the time being, in our physical life, we end up with the curse of the ground and we have to deal with it. In Psalms 102, the writer says this, the psalmist says in verse 24, I say, oh my God, do not take away, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. But even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. That's the, that's the testimony of Scripture. That is what happened in this Short series of verses with Adam. Think about how much human history was established in those three verses. Physical death. The necessity of God to replace the entire heavens and earth with a new heavens and new earth, which we know is coming. And in the, in the meantime, the nature of all things was established here. The fact that all things wear out. The fact that all things go from better to worse. The fact that everything we build falls apart. We take that for granted. That's just what it means to live on earth. None of that was necessarily to be the way it was for the long term. It was something created here in this moment as a result of sin. Aging, disease, all of those things. Look at Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, you can go read about how Isaiah talks about the day to come in which God will restore this world in a new way. And he talks about the fact that things will happen differently. One verse, he says, 
They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. As for the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. No physical death. No building something only to have it wear out and somebody else enjoy it later after you're gone. The work of your hands will fully mature into an eternity of fruit. What a remarkable thing. I haven't the foggiest idea what that's going to be like. I can only hear it and and sort of understand it, but yet not appreciate it because we don't have anything to go by that tells us what that's like. A kitchen that's never dirty. Now, I don't know if it means that, but it's something like that. The things that we take today as the natural way of the world will be have changed to such a degree that we won't really understand it till we're there. And so the chapter now wraps up with a number of significant details. God having pronounced these things against Adam and all who descend from Adam. By the way, woman, of course, is caught up in all of these pronouncements. Where does woman trace her physical origins to? Adam. (laughs) See the genius of God building woman out of Adam? Remember, woman did not receive these because of anything she did. She's receiving them because Adam received them, and she is a part of who Adam is physically. The grace there, of course, is that what good would it have been for God to have the man out of the garden and the woman in the garden? Or the man dying and the woman living forever? How, does, how do those two work together if they're going to be so separated by their nature and their existence? But if God knows Adam will fall, he builds woman out of Adam, he's assured that whatever he does, she shares in it. It's wisdom in the sense of him knowing where the plan is going. So then the chapter wraps up. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Just looking at them briefly, don't they seem to come out of nowhere? In light of what God just said to Adam, you'd think his first response would have been something other than to get distracted and say, you know, I think my wife needs a new name. Doesn't that seem odd? And then you have God making skin garments for them. Don't they already have fig leaves? The story has abruptly moved off the point into some other points. But of course they're related, and you may already see how. But let's take a moment to understand that. First, Adam here is renaming woman. Renaming her. Some have misunderstood this and thought that because she didn't have a name... He thought, well, it's about time I name her. But that's not true at all. Go back and look in verse 23 of chapter 2. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That was her name. So when you hear a husband say, hey, woman, he's just using the biblical name and getting in trouble for it, no doubt. That was her name. Now, here, for some reason... After being cursed by God, he decides, you know, I think you need a new name. And he names her Eve. Literally in the, in the Hebrew, that word is Chavai. You have Eve in yours. I have Eve in mine. But the literal word is not E-V-E. The literal word in Hebrew is Chavai. He says, your name is Chavai. Well, that word literally means life or living in Hebrew. He named her life. He named her living. That was her name now. God had just said a moment earlier, remember, when he spoke to woman, that the solution to this sin problem, which now Adam feels the full weight of, having just received those curses, he is fully appreciating what he just did. But he remembers what, the man, what God told the woman. What God told the woman was, you are going to be part of the solution to this problem that you have participated in. 
The solution is there would be a seed who will come through you. That seed will be the, the one who destroys the serpent, who instigated all of this. Later we know that's the Messiah. And that Messiah will be the source of the solution and woman will be the source of this new life. And all that come from woman now will find their origins in this moment. And so to this news, to the news that his wife was to be the mother of all living and ultimately the mother of the Messiah who would restore all of the problems that have been created in the sin of the garden, he hears that and he says, you're going to be the solution. You're the one who brings the living, the seed of woman. In contrast to the seed of Satan, you need to be called living because you're so integral to God's plan. Adam here is showing proof that he received a word from God and he believed it. And his actions are a reflection of what he believed. This is in stark contrast to what he did earlier. We know God had spoken to Adam, remember, about the tree. Don't eat of it. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Got that? Check. Don't eat the tree. Got it, God. Sometime later, there he is snacking on the tree, bringing sin into the garden. This time he hears God say, your wife is the mother of the living who will solve this problem. He says, got it. You're living. Not going to forget it this time. You're living. And I'm being a bit facetious. What he said, though, is proof that he believed God's word in this case. What he did in the prior situation arguably demonstrates a lack of faith in God's word. So the fall of Adam brings us a troubling question. If Adam didn't believe God's word concerning the tree, was he saved? When he ate of the fruit, was he showing a lack of faith? And by his sin now, was he outside God's grace? Was he in a state of unbelief after he ate? I think the answer is yes. I think had we stopped the clock on history right after he ate the tree, Adam's not in heaven. Adam has no basis on which atonement can be offered. He's sinned. Sin has a a wage. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. He would have had that outcome with no hope for any kind of restitution. There was no basis on which he could have been saved. There was no promise that he was trying to believe in. The only promise he had been given, he didn't believe in. So in, in the way we say it, you could have said Adam was an unbeliever. But now he's received a new promise. The new promise he has evidently believed. And just as well as we could have said he was an unbeliever before, I believe now in this moment, in verse 20, you see the salvation of Adam. The moment in which he believes. And the proof of his belief is in his actions. That he named his wife in accordance with God's decree. And in the same way that we are called to believe in a promise so that we can reverse the effect of Adam's sin in the garden, he begins that. He becomes not only the first who sins, but arguably he becomes the first who is made a believer who is restored by faith. So in response to that faith, now God does something in verse 21. God demonstrates that forgiveness is available to Adam for his faith by making clothes. I'm not sure if you see the connection there or not, but understand something about these clothes. They come from animal skins. Now remember what Adam had done beforehand with woman's help? They made their own little fig leaf shorts as I call them, they put something on. But remember the effect that it had? Here they are wearing fig leaves and God walks into the garden. Now we remember all this already that God 
by virtue of his holiness, is a threat to anyone who is sinful. And that threat is so pronounced that we instinctively feel fear in the face of God if we have sin. And that fear causes us to want to hide for our own protection. So as God enters the garden, they hide. But what we said was so interesting was they put on the fig leaf clothing. Why do they still feel vulnerable? Why didn't it solve that problem of feeling fearful? Well, the answer is because there was no atoning effect in those leaves. There was no death. There was no blood. There was nothing that can cover sin in a plant. There's no life in a plant. But because animals have kinefesh, the physical can be covered by animals in the sense that an animal can be put to death and in a limited way become atonement for them. Limited atonement, not in the sense of Christ's atonement. It's all predicated on faith. Faith has to be there first. But in the way he demonstrated faith, God says, now with faith in place, I will provide you with a covering that will help you that will take some of that fear away, that will give you a sense of comfort, but not the fullness of it. And so he makes animal skins. The first death in Scripture takes place here. Some animal, we don't know what it was, was put to death so that a skin could be made available. I don't know of any way that an animal can give up its skin without also giving up its life. And so as a result, the atoning work here is begun. Now, this atonement is a picture of a greater atonement on the cross, the same that the law was for Israel. There was never a moment in which somebody in the temple put an animal to death and solved the problem of sin. That just didn't happen. Like the writer of Hebrews says, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot remit for sins. But in the limited way that they help us deal with the guilt and the conviction of sin, they have an effect. And in the greater sense, they picture what Christ does on the cross. But look at how it affected Adam. Before, he tries to cover himself by his own work in making something with his own hands, and it had no effect. That work was insufficient. But now in faith, he gets a true covering, one provided not by his hands, but by God's hands. God made the clothing for Adam in this case. God's work can do what man's work cannot. Genesis 3.22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, And now he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In verse 23, he's driven out, it says, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Remember, he wasn't made from the ground inside the garden. He was made from the ground outside the garden. Then the garden was made, remember, and then he was placed in the garden. So that's the reference. He's being sent out to where he came from. Which direction was that? In biblical terms, where is sin and where is salvation? East is sin, west is salvation. The promised land is in the west. Mesopotamia is in the east. First thing you'll notice in the verses I read, though, God uses plural when referencing himself. What a simple way to see that even in the first pages of the Bible, God is referring to himself as the Godhead. I get questions to the ministry every week. I got one just this last week challenging the notion of the Trinity. It is such a shame, but in so many corners of the world, there are false doctrines prevalent on the matter of who God is and the nature of God. And the Trinity is one of the first things the enemy assaults. Because if I put an end to the notion that there is a part of God who became man and was sacrificed on our behalf, then I do away 
with the heart of the gospel. But what a simple way here to see that God himself says that a man became like one of us. There is a plural reference to God, Elohim, but there is also a singular reference to God. He has become like one of us. What a great internal reference to the Trinity. This statement is a comment when God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Now he might stretch out his hand. This explains why God excludes man from the garden that he made for man. The garden had the tree of life in it. That's the problem here. The problem is that inherent in the garden was not only all the other plants and trees, but there was this one plant, the one that we've already studied, that provides for eternal life. Now, we said back when we looked at it that we're not saying that this tree is magic or that God couldn't have created eternal life without it. It's just that he chose to use this tree as a means to that end for the purpose of telling some story through it, which we can look at another time. But in the fact that it existed, now God has to deal with it. If it's in the tree, I mean, if it's in the garden, a man can get access to it and it leads to eternal life. He has that same problem again in which his curse has said you have to have your body replaced. He can't allow something that he created to intervene and stop that plan. So he has to push man out of the garden. It's grace here to exclude him. Grace. Think about what the effect of an immortal army of mankind is for Satan. What is the effect of an army that can never die, that's sinful, left in the hands of Satan. That would be a tremendous problem. By forcing them out, God is ensuring physical death and taking them to a limit. Secondly, there's another reason why they're forced out of the garden. God prevents Adam and woman, now Eve, from entering God's presence again in the garden. They're saved by faith. But nevertheless, they carry sin in their bodies, and that sin cannot live in the presence of God. If they were allowed to enter back into the garden and encounter God in that garden, should he choose to stay there, this is arguably God's temple until such a time that he produced a new one for himself with Israel. This is his home ground. This is where he spends time in the cool of the day, so to speak. When he wants to tabernacle among men, he is in the garden. But his presence cannot be accessed directly. So God literally, in the Hebrew, it's a very strong word, drives them out, expels them. You get the sense that they're being pushed. That it was against their desires. They are being made to leave the garden. It's probably being done by his angels. Because then he stations one at the entrance. Now this must have been a dramatic scene for many, many years. In fact, if you... Go with me in in believing that this went undisturbed until something came along to disturb it, which would have to be the flood. There's really nothing else that would have likely come that would have had the force of God sufficient to undo God's work in the garden. That means that it was stood here for 1,630 years. Well after Adam's death, multiple generations of Adam's descendants would have been living near and around the garden, would have known where it was, could have pointed at it, would have seen the flaming arrow or the flaming sword and would have seen the cherubim for centuries, for millennia. Keep that in mind next time you read the first chapter of Romans when Paul says about these early people that knowing God, they chose not to honor Him, but they let their hearts be darkened and they turned to myths and they walked away from the truth. That, In other words, it wasn't merely the moment of of Adam's fall that produced that spiritual blindness. There was a physical presence of God still on the earth for a long, long, long time. And men 
knowingly chose to turn away from it and ignore it. I would imagine that Adam and the next generations would have had plenty of opportunity to discuss with Dad, why can't we go in there again? The grace here is that God preserves the human race and ensures that his plan for redemption has time to play out and get done over the course of history without man coming to an untimely end by facing God in judgment in the garden. By the way, that reference to a flaming sword, that's actually a reference to the God's Shekinah glory. It's not a literal sword there. It's more like pillar of fire in the desert. It's the idea of God himself showing his glory so that men would be afraid and would not enter. Think about what's changed. Before this moment, Adam had direct fellowship with God, but now sin has placed a barrier between God and between man in the form of God's glory as an impassable barrier. And that barrier was obvious. It was foreboding. As long as Adam in the world existed and the garden was in the world, anyone could have walked by and said, you know, that's why we can't see God anymore, because he won't let us in, because our sin is a barrier. We can't get past that gate or we would die. Only if something comes along and removes that barrier will we have any hope to go through those doors and see God again in the garden or in paradise. And we know that Christ, by his blood, cleansed that sin here and in the temple. And as a result, that barrier was taken down. That's such a beautiful picture, isn't it? A barrier to God's goodness, a barrier to his fellowship, a barrier to his presence because of sin made necessary for the benefit of men. But in the short term, in the time being, it is a, it is a terrible thing. Today, we have access in the spirit. In the future, we'll have access in our physical presence with our new bodies. With that, we'll enter and go into communion. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the chapter we've studied. Thank you, Father, for your wisdom. Thank you, Father, for your love. Father, it was my sin. It was the sin of every human being that created that barrier. We owe that sin in its original form to Adam, but we certainly have plenty of our own. I ask, Father, that as you have taught us in this chapter, you've also taught each of us how in our own walk we continue to create that barrier. And maybe perhaps, Father, you would guide us into a life in which we walk away from that sin. I do pray as well, Father, that we have each accepted the sacrifice of Christ for that barrier is there before us until we do. And I ask, Father, our heart's intent would be to speak with an urgent manner to the world around us about the need for them to accept that same sacrifice for the same reason that they are far away from God and yet He is near to them. I ask, Father, You would show us all these things so that we may be servants in a better way. And as we turn to communion, Father, help us remember that sacrifice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.